Well, if you were with us at our carol service a few weeks ago, one of the carols we sang asked the question, who is he in yonder stall? And each stanza of the carol asks a similar question. Who is he to whom they bring all the sick and sorrowing? Who is he on yonder tree? Dies in shame and agony. And at Christmas, as it comes around again, we're inevitably wanting to ask that question. Who is he? What is all the fuss about? Why do we think it's so important that Jesus came? Who is he? What did he come to do? And in John's Gospel, the last of the Gospels written, this is addressed throughout the Gospel. And towards the end of his Gospel, John summarizes the importance this way. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, there's not many things are a matter of life and death. We act as though they are. But this actually is. You never think of it that way, but Christmas is about an issue of life or death. And as John begins his gospel, which I want to concentrate on for a few minutes this morning, he begins to unfold for us the importance of who Jesus is. He starts off in the first three verses, which Michael read for us in that first section, by looking at the identity of Jesus not primarily as, as Matthew does, or even Luke, concentrating on his birth. But he looks at Jesus before his birth, before the birth of the world, in eternity itself, in the beginning. Deliberately echoing the words of Genesis 1, in the beginning. And he takes us beyond time and space to where God has existed for all eternity before anything else existed, and with him and in him existed the Word, who was with God. He was, John says, in the beginning with God. Later on, he'll make clear that this is the Word that became flesh in the humanity of Jesus. So he lifts our eyes beyond the things of time and space into eternity. And there, before he even took on human nature, we see the one who would become man as God with God. He goes on to say, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. There's only one being in the entire universe of which you can say that, and that's the creator by definition. And so he's telling us, not as some people believe, that Jesus was the first of the creation, but he's the one who is beyond creation and through whom and by whom all things were created. He is the creator and therefore is divine. Then he goes on to say that Jesus is light. This is a favorite theme, of course, in his gospel. If you've studied the gospel, you know that. 
In him was life, he says. And here is the idea that Christ is, as creator, he's the author of life. He sustains life. As you are taking in the breath and your heart is beating, listening to me this morning and you're trying to keep your concentration, you're wondering when I'm going to be finished. <laughs> every one of those breaths, every one of those heartbeats are being sustained by him. And he says that his life, anticipating the fact he's going to tell us that this word became flesh, was the light of men. As I said, this is a favorite theme in John's gospel. In John chapter 8, he would say, or, or he records Jesus himself saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so he continues in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. Here was a, a light that could not be extinguished. And so from the very beginning, there's a contrast, isn't there, between light and darkness. But it's not just a contrast of equals. The moment you light a light, <clears throat> there's no longer darkness. Darkness is defeated by the light. And so he's going to be setting the scene here for what Jesus has come to do. He's come to conquer darkness, spiritual darkness, and everything associated with it. And so the mission of the Son of God, whom John is introducing us to, as light in the darkness. And as I say, this is a favorite theme, not just in his gospel, but in all his writings. In the first letter, he says, The life was manifested, we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. That you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It's not accidental, is it, that we celebrate Christmas with, amongst other things, lights. It's a reminder to us that in the world of darkness, in the world where there is no sense of direction, and such direction as there is is automatically going in the wrong way, Jesus is the light. He goes on to emphasize the distinction between Jesus who will become man, and all other men. And he contrasts them briefly in verses 6 and 8 with John the Baptist. He says two things. John was a man from God, but he was not in the beginning with God, nor was he God. Secondly, he was a witness to the light, but he himself wasn't the light. His role was to encourage others to look to the light <clears throat> and to follow the light. In verse 9, he transitions, if you like, to Jesus coming into the world. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. The whole point of the gospel, the good news, isn't just an academic description of who Jesus is in relation to God. 
It's a call to see him for who he is because he has come with a mission. He has come on mission to bring us to God. By bringing God to us, he's bringing us to God. He's going to tell us that in this world where people have turned their back on true purpose and true meaning, the coming of Jesus challenges us to see one human life, a real human life. God became a real man, and as a real man, he lived as we are all supposed to live. In a world where nobody lives the way they're supposed to live, we look to Jesus and say, so that's what God planned us to be. But he does more than that. In grace, he doesn't just point out obviously that we don't measure up to what we should be, although he does do that. He's the remedy for the fact that we don't live up to what we should be. He's the remedy for our failure to be what we should be, to be what he is. He's not just the example of how life should be lived, but his life, his death, and his resurrection are the light of hope for every sinner who has failed to be what they should be, and that's all of us. And yes, I'm talking to you. By simply turning to him and putting our trust in him. So as you would expect, the reaction to Jesus as light is critical. As you read through John's gospel, you see the reactions to it. And in verses 10 to 13, that's exactly what we have laid out for us, the reactions to Jesus as the light. And ultimately, <clears throat> there's, there's two things we can do with light. We can run to the light, or we can run from the light. Later on in his gospel in chapter 3, when he explains to us the, the wonderful gift that Jesus is from God the Father for our salvation, he will say that this is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So he begins to outline the, the two reactions to Jesus. And as we look at these reactions to Jesus, it may make you uncomfortable because you, yes you, are exhibiting one or other of these reactions right now. First of all, he says in verse 10, he was in the world, then he rehearses what he said already, the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Can you imagine anything so incomprehensible and inexplicable as the creator coming into the world and the world just shrugs? Yes, so what? And John here refers not just to the fact that Jesus became man and came as man into the world, although that's obviously included, I think he's referring to something that the scripture teaches, that even before he became man, he was always involved with the world. This word that is God and yet distinct from the Father has been intimately involved with the world and specifically with mankind from the beginning. 
In Proverbs 8, 29 to 31, these words are recorded. When he, speaking of God, assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command, then he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. And the picture we get here is that the one who is God as the word, the one who was God through whom all things were created, it's as though in delight he's anticipating this intimacy that he can have with the sons of men when he comes to reconcile them with the Father in whom he always rejoices. And when he comes into the world, the world's reaction is, so? The question is, is that your reaction? God came, so? What time are you finished at? And this incomprehension becomes even more pointed. <laughs> he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own. In one sense, all the world is his own. Yet from the Gospels, we see <clears throat> that the likely intended reference here is far more deep and far more personal. Because Jesus, in the flesh, is the covenant God of Israel. Jesus is the one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. But his own did not receive him. This is the one who led his people through the Red Sea. But when he came, they did not receive him. This is the one who was symbolized in the Passover lamb, whose blood protected the children of Israel when the angel of death came over Egypt. But they did not receive him. This is the one who was typified in the manna in the wilderness. But when he revealed himself as the true manna, they rejected him. This is the one who is the water-giving rock, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians. All these things were, were shadows, real pictures of what he would be when he came. And when he came, in reality, he was, as Isaiah says, he was rejected of men, despised and rejected. And the rejection goes very deep. It begins in the synagogue in Nazareth in, Lazarus, in, in, in Luke 4, when they want, to, they want to kill him. But in John 7, 5, we have this amazing verse recorded. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Even his own brothers were saying, so... But the amazing message of grace is he came nonetheless. Even as he delighted in the sons of men, as recorded to us in Proverbs, he knew what the reaction would be to him when he came and he inspired Isaiah to record it by the Holy Spirit, yet he came. 
you'd say, well, you're painting a very dark picture here. But it's not the whole story, is it? If we were to stop here, we'd say, well, what hope is there for anyone? If even his own brothers didn't get it, certainly at one stage, in John 7 they didn't get it, can anyone really benefit by his coming into the world? Well, the good news is this, that God can cut through all our foolishness, our wickedness, our unbelief, our distractedness, our preoccupation with everything else, and by his grace enable us to see who Jesus is and respond correctly to him. Because the text continues, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The good news is, and John brings it here, is that all do not refuse to see and believe. All do not reject. And indeed, all who receive and all who believe were those who at one stage did reject. That's the miracle, isn't it? All who believe were one stage unbelievers. All who follow now were once the sheep who had gone astray, who have turned everyone to his own way. But as Peter would say, but have now returned to that great shepherd and overseer of our souls. Accepting Jesus for who he is, God's word among us, results in wonderful blessing. The blessing is this, God accepts them as his children in Jesus. In Jesus, we are given amazing, undeserved, the gracious right to be called God's children. Again, a favorite theme in John's writings. Now, he says in 1 John, we are the children of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How does this happen? Well, it takes a miracle. But it's a miracle that God can and does perform. Believers are believers because it's God's will that they be believers. Well, of course, no one becomes a believer apart from wanting to be a believer. But the question is, where does the wanting come from? John reminds us here, in a wonderful way, by eliminating all the places that it doesn't come from, so we focus on the one place and the one person where it only can come from. They are born in a supernatural way that so changes their nature and their desires that they want to, and indeed nothing can stop them from coming to Jesus. He says it's not something that coincides with their natural birth. It's not of blood, he says. Hence the need for the new birth that he'll talk about in John chapter 3. Neither is it given by the human will of their parents. Parents 
even though they greatly desire their children to know Jesus, they cannot decide that their children will be spiritually alive. They have responsibilities. They have promises from God. But it's only God alone can give or withhold spiritual life. Not of blood, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. He alone can and does give spiritual life. The good news, he gives it to those who don't deserve it and desperately need it and simply ask for it. Not only does he give it to those who just ask for it, he gives them the desire to ask for it. I mean, how easy is that? If you find yourself this morning still asking, what is all the fuss about? Why is it so important that Jesus came? I don't get it. I have good news for you. If you ask God to open your eyes, he'll open your eyes. If you say, I know this is the right way to go, but I don't think I can do it. Well, you've made the first step. You can't. But he can change your heart and enable you to follow him. John, later on in chapter 3, would go on to put it this way. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. You can't rise naturally above your nature. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. If you're not yet born of the Spirit, if you're here because, well, the family are here and it's kind of Christmas and you should kind of go to church at Christmas. But you really don't see it. I have really good news for you. Jesus came to open blind eyes. And if you're so far from him that you're spiritually dead, I have good news for you. Jesus raises the dead. Come to me, he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy and it's light and you'll find rest for your soul. Spiritual life opens our eyes to see things the way they really are. It changes who we are on the inside so that we desire and appreciate Jesus and who he is and where he's come from and where he can bring us and all the spiritual things that we need to understand. And it changes that the whole direction of our life. It enables us to will and to desire and to do what God wants us to do. The Apostle Paul would put it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Who is he? He's the one who was born so that you could be born again.